In 2010, the Waterfront Partnership of Baltimore announced that they would make the Inner Harbor swimmable by 2020. It is now 2022 and we are far from seeing significant improvements. And the Waterfront Partnership now estimates that the Inner Harbor will be swimmable by 2030. The Waterfront Partnership of Baltimore created the Healthy Harbor Initiative, which implemented projects to improve water quality. After 12 years of the Healthy Harbor Initiative, why has the Waterfront Partnership delayed making the Inner Harbor swimmable in, until 2030? Learn more about these questions and more as we take you on a... Deep dive. Deep dive. Deep dive. Deep dive. Into the Inner Harbor. We're making a podcast. Don't. The Inner Harbor used to be a teeming saltland marsh environment filled with a diverse array of organisms in the ecosystem. The original Baltimore town, according to the charter, included a large amount of land on the eastern side of the land parcel that was all marshland. While the city was not quick to grow at first, as shipping technology and capabilities grew, the town's location meant it slowly became a hub for shipping and manufacturing. This became the priority. An article in the Society of Architectural Historians explained that the act of maintaining shipping channels meant that the harbor needed continual dredging scooping out everything on the bottom of the harbor, including mud, plants, and waste. This was a, such a continual process due to the large amounts of erosion, which itself was increasing as forests were cleared and streets were constructed. Thus, the marshes were drained with the aim of furthering shipping capabilities and waterfront development. As people began to move to the port city in increasing numbers, the shores became filled with industrial manufacturing plants and housing for the workers. Ports were constructed, and much of the living shorelines were lost. The harbor water was used to wash sediment from the manufacturing communities and was put back into the water. Sediment from this settled at the bottom. The habitats for fish and crabs and other organisms were gone. The entire ecosystem changed. Then, as the railroad began to take off, ships shifted to Dock Down River, the period of decline of the working harbor began, and the once hub of activity and manufacturing was no more. Over time, though, the power of certain actors led to a revitalization campaign of this area. The Greater Baltimore Committee began a plan that would attract investors and commercial centers to the area. With large office buildings also came shops and restaurants, as well as walkable streets and places for community events. Today, the Inner Harbor is an open place, However, the problems created by the shipping era are still there. Some groups today envision it to be swimmable sometime soon. Downhill, everything you do in your backyard will affect ocean health. The fertilizer you put on your lawn, um, insecticides, all these kinds of things, it, there's a connection. People often think as the ocean is this vast thing that cannot be hurt, and it's um, remote from us, but actually, the things that we do on land affect the health of the ocean. So that was John Cover, the National Aquarium's general curator, speaking to a Baltimore news station. As he mentioned, quote, the things that we do on land affect the health of the ocean, end quote. Baltimore's inner harbor water quality is a problem that must be addressed for the Waterfront Partnership to officially make the inner harbor swimmable by 2030. For decades, there were constant sewer backups throughout Baltimore's sewage system, which would then overflow and contaminate water sources, including the Inner Harbor. 
Therefore, in 2020, Baltimore City initiated the Headworks Project, a $429 million investment to update Baltimore's sewage system, and as a result, decrease the amount of pollution that enters the Inner Harbor. Despite these changes to the sewage system, there has not been significant changes to the stormwater system. Stormwater runoff is a large contributor as to why people cannot swim in the Inner Harbor. According to the Waterfront Partnership Report of 2021, stormwater runoff carries nitrogen and phosphorus, and this is a concern for the Inner Harbor's water quality because nitrogen and phosphorus create algal blooms. However, what is most concerning about stormwater runoff is the fecal matter that it carries into the water. E. coli and enterococcus levels are an adequate indicator of how much stormwater runoff reaches the inner harbor. Maryland's Department of the Environment has set acceptable enterococcus levels at 151 units of enterococcus per 100 milliliters. As of 2020, the Waterfront Partnership reported that approximately 60% of the water samples taken throughout the year at the downtown selling center met the acceptable standards. But is 60% enough? Would you feel safe jumping in the water knowing that it's only 60% safe? Although the bacteria levels vary at different sites of the inner harbor, bacteria levels always increase after storms. So the biggest problems lie within Baltimore's stormwater system. According to the article, Public Health Effects of Inadequately Managed Stormwater Runoff, the researchers state that, quote, expansion of urban areas is creating more impervious surfaces such as roofs, roads, and parking lots that collect pathogens and other contaminants, end quote. Once it rains, all of these contaminants then flow into water sources. In their study, the researchers investigated the public health risk from stormwater runoff in urban areas. The researchers claim that poor water quality in urban areas is attributed to the landscape. For example, most of the surface area in Baltimore, especially near the inner harbor, is roads and parking lots. And the researchers state that these surfaces collect pathogens and chemical contaminants that then pollute the water after rainfall or when the snow melts. As a result, the pollutants impact the viability of recreational activities in the inner harbor. If no improvements are made, what is most concerning are the sediments that accumulate in stormwater drainage pipelines. The pathogens are not exposed to sunlight that usually degrades these pathogens, so when it rains, all of these pollutants resurface and contaminate the water. Some of the pollutants carried into the inner harbor include nitrogen and phosphorus. Aside from causing algal blooms, they are a health risk. Other pollutants include metals like lead, which could potentially cause cancer. In their study, the researchers analyzed turbidity data and used the results to indicate the impact of stormwater runoff in different cities across the United States. Therefore, I looked into the turbidity data at the Inner Harbor. Eyes on the Bay is a website sponsored by the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, and on their website they include daily water quality updates across different places in Baltimore. There are two testing sites in the Inner Harbor that collect several readings, and included in this list are turbidity readings. On April 27, 2022, the meter read 2.2 nephilometric turbidity units, also known as NTU, according to a turbidity technical report by Oregon's Department of Environmental Quality, 
a turbidity reading of 2.2 NTU is considered marginally suitable to swim in. Knowing that stormwater runoff is a problem, what can be done to address these infrastructural problems? The researchers who wrote Public Health Effects of Inadequately Managed Stormwater Runoff recognized that completely renovating stormwater drainage systems would be very expensive, so they proposed alternative strategies such as narrower streets and reduced parking could decrease the effects. They also note that the most effective strategy would be to have ponds that collect and slow down stormwater runoff. The ponds will settle out the suspended solids and the sunlight will break down pathogens that can kill up to 70% of the pathogens. As already mentioned, Baltimore initiated the HeadWorks project in 2022, but what improvements can be made to stormwater management? According to an article about stormwater green infrastructure in the Mid-Atlantic region, written by researchers from Princeton University's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, one possible solution to minimize the flow of stormwater runoff is through stormwater green infrastructure, which includes rain gardens and detention ponds and other alternatives besides stormwater drains. In this study, the research group analyzed stormwater green infrastructure in Washington, D.C., Montgomery County, Maryland, and Baltimore, Maryland, since these areas have enough data about their respective water quality. Out of the three sites, quote, Baltimore County only had 7.9% of its landscape drained through stormwater green infrastructure, end quote. The researchers found that areas with stormwater green infrastructure, quote, show 44% less nitrate contamination and 48% less nitrogen exports, end quote. Only 10% of Baltimore's landscape is covered with stormwater green infrastructure, and increasing it would significantly alter the course of the Inner Harbor because less nitrogen decreases the susceptibility of algal blooms and lower nitrate levels decrease risk exposure for recreational water activities. The current state of the Inner Harbor has improved far beyond its previous condition just within the past 30 years. Although the tests we perform suggest that the Inner Harbor is swimmable, the data and recent trends indicate otherwise. Specifically, looking at dissolved oxygen levels as recent as 2021, thanks to data provided from Eyes on the Bay, uh, we can still see immense drops in oxygen within the wetter months, going from 10.98 milligrams per liter in March to 3.64 milligrams per liter in May, uh, when specifically looking at the eastern portion of the Inner Harbor at the aquarium east surface. This implies that there's an increase in bacteria and algae, which can create an ultimately toxic and anoxic environment for both humans and the marine ecosystem. This is further supported when we take a look at other contaminants within the Inner Harbor water. Thanks to data provided by Baltimore Water Watch, we can see that chlorophyll levels in the water uh, within t April 2022, specifically the northwestern region of the Inner Harbor, uh, are between 11 to 12 micrograms per liter, signifying that there is a large volume of algae, plants, and bacteria uh, than typical environments. And this is further supported with the total phosphorus and nitrogen levels. Um, they are much higher than usual, at around one milligram per liter of nitrogen uh, in the water and 0.047 milligrams per liter of total phosphorus within the water, which is much higher than would you would expect in a healthy environment. This signifies that eutrophication is happening, 
and that with the excess nitrogen and phosphorus, toxins such as microcystin, which is produced by algae, and the culmination of harmful bacteria is adding to the already poisonous environment present within the inner harbor. To add on to what I've discussed, I was able to interview Dr. Hariha Rajaram, a professor in the Environmental Health and Engineering Department, and I asked about the contaminants within the Inner Harbor and how he thinks life will continue in the Inner Harbor. Do you think that currently, like, so in the Inner Harbor, there isn't much life present besides, like, the occasional, like, the, the duck and the geese uh, yeah. there, but there isn't, like, sea life there or, like, freshwater fish. Do you think that within, like, given all the contaminants present currently, but the efforts are moving forward to try and, like, fix that, could we see, like, development of more life beyond, like, microbes and tiny plants to, like, reintroduction of freshwater fish as they're trying to improve the quality of the water? Uh, not in the near future, but, uh, you know, even if the, if the system does recover, okay. then there might be a natural, uh, you know, occurrence of fish that are adapted to estuarial coastal type waters but I don't I don't know I, I mean I've seen some work on uh, risks of consuming any seafood harvested from the inner harbor area not I mean that means that there is something out there but I don't, I don't know that there is I mean, you never see anybody engaging in any uh, fishing activity there right even yeah. the crab Harvesting is uh, farther offshore. this past Saturday, April 23rd, also known as Earth Day Weekend, you might have been able to hear this tune being sung by the many adoring fans of Mr. Trashwheel during the celebration of his eighth birthday. Crowds of Baltimoreans showed out in their trashiest apparel, literally dressed in repurposed trash bags and other solid waste paraphernalia. It was certainly a heartwarming sight to see that this sustainable innovation has garnered such a cult following among local residents. The trash wheel was invented by John Kellett in 2008 who launched a pilot vessel at that time. A larger vessel named Mr. Trash Wheel was later developed and replaced the pilot vessel and was launched in May 2014. The trash wheel vessel is part of the waterfront partnership of the City of Baltimore's Healthy Harbor Plan. Mr. Trash Wheel is a semi-autonomous trash interceptor that is placed at the end of a river, stream, or other outfall. Here in Baltimore, it sits at the junction where Jones Falls River empties into the inner harbor. Sustainably powered and built to withstand the biggest storms, Mr. Trash Wheel uses a unique blend of solar and hydropower to pull hundreds of tons of trash out of the water each year. The Trash Wheel was invented by Clearwater Mills a locally owned water treatment plant company based in Baltimore. The most Mr. Trash Wheel has ever collected in a single day is 38,000 pounds.
When solid waste or debris, such as plastic bags, bottles, and cigarette butts, are thrown on the ground, they get washed into storm drains and directly into our waterways. Such debris can smother aquatic plants and also serve as transport for non-native species into an ecosystem. In addition to potentially choking, suffocating, or disabling aquatic life like ducks, fish, turtles, birds, and crabs, litter decreases oxygen levels in the water when it decays. In Baltimore's case, trash from the streets of the city gets flushed into storm drains that empty into the Jones Falls River. The floating rubbish then gets carried by the river to its outlet into the inner harbor, where it is captured by Mr. Trash Wheel. Step one in this trash interception process is funneling the trash. Using containment booms, trash flowing down the river is funneled into Mr. Trash Wheel's gaping mouth. The booms have a two-foot skirt that allows them to capture trash floating beneath the surface. As a fun fact, trash booms also help stop oil slicks from polluting the water. Step two is raking and conveying the trash. Powered by the sun and the current of the river, Mr. Trash Wheel's rake lifts litter out of the water and onto his conveyor belt. The conveyor belt moves very slowly, but is strong enough to lift anything that comes down the river, including tires, mattresses, and even trees. The third step is keeping the wheel turning. Mr. Trash Wheel's giant 14-foot water wheel is the engine that powers his rakes and conveyor. When there's not enough water current, solar panels power pumps that pump water onto the wheel to keep it churning. Fun fact number two is that Mr. Trash Wheel can operate in tidal waterways, which means he keeps churning even if the river is flowing upstream. The fourth and final step is sending the trash to the dumpster. When the trash reaches the top of the conveyor belt, it falls into a dumpster sitting on a separate floating barge. Once the dumpster fills, it is towed away and replaced with an empty dumpster. Ideally, the plastic Mr. Trash Wheel picks up gets recycled, but current sorting technologies are unable to separate the plastics from all the other trash. For the time being, the best alternative is to incinerate the trash to generate electricity. Mr. Trash Wheel is only switched on when there is trash in the water for him to eat. Mr. Trash Wheel is busiest during and after rainstorms, which is when trash and debris are washed into storm drains, rivers, and streams, and eventually into Mr. Trash Wheel's mouth. The trash wheels operate at a very slow speed when turned on. Their rakes and conveyor belt move at a slow pace that deters fish, ducks, and etc. away from the machine, preventing them from being entangled or harmed. Here are the results that we found testing the water specifically near Mr. Trashville down at the Inner Harbor using equipment from the EHE department. 109.7% dissolved oxygen saturation, zero total suspended solids, 10 parts per million nitrate, zero parts per million nitrite, 0 0.50 parts per million ammonia, and a pH of 7.4. It is of utmost importance for us to include that we think these tests were more than likely faulty, um, seeing as we tested in multiple locations in the Inner Harbor and most of the results came out to be the same. And also many of them matched our controls using deionized water. For this reason, we are comparing them to other results found that same day from the Eyes on the Bay, which is a resource for Maryland tidal water quality data and information. 
That same day that we went to collect water, those sensors and monitors picked up an average pH of 8.26 and an average dissolved oxygen saturation of 116.48%. From analyzing both our results and the results from the Eyes on the Bay sensors, we must conclude that more information is needed and we will have to take more tests at a later date with updated equipment in order to get better results on whether or not the Inner Harbor is capable of becoming swimmable by the year 2030. The trash interceptor removes 20 tons of trash per month from the mouth of the Jones Falls River, stopping it from entering Baltimore's Inner Harbor. Having such a spectacle on display serves to help local residents understand the impact of their day-to-day -day actions. However, it is worth questioning how valuable a solution Mr. Trashwell offers. What if, instead of spending as much as $800,000 on this project, that money was used for more preventative measures, like intercepting the trash before it even makes its way into the Jones Falls River? Or creating infrastructure to keep trash out of the city's storm drains? Waiting until the trash gets into the harbor doesn't stop the trash's effects on the ecosystem of the inner harbor. While Mr. Trash Wheel provides an amusing source of awareness and joy, it is also important to realize that there are still many areas for improvement to pursue. If you walk along the pier right next to the National Aquarium, you will see a small footbridge connecting to the next pier over. The water here has Gatorade bottles and chip bags floating in it, as well as a lot of scum on the surface of the water. But if you look closer, you will notice something else. Nestled in the corner between this bridge and the edge of the pier is a small 400 square foot floating wetland. This floating wetland is a prototype. One Jack Cover, the general curator at the National Aquarium, built with his team and is testing before it is transformed into a larger project. The Floating Wetland Island was manufactured by a company called Floating Island Solutions. So we worked with them to develop the 200 square foot island. That's Charmaine Dahlenberg, the Director of Field Conservation at the National Aquarium, in a 2010 video explaining the latest prototype of the floating wetlands. While now there is a larger, more advanced prototype in its place, the goal remains the same. The Inner Harbor's floating wetland does not contain soil. Instead, the plants sit in a material Jack Cover says is similar to a Brillo pad. He explained that hydroponically growing plants, quote, take up nutrients directly from the water. With the harbor's high nitrogen content, they're basically sitting in fertilizer, unquote. Additionally, aerators introduce higher levels of dissolved oxygen into the water, as well as circulate it so it is not as stagnant. Other places have used floating wetlands in promising ways as well. According to a 2015 study, one of the first floating wetlands constructed for this purpose was in the late 1980s in Germany. As the popularity of this relatively cheap solution spread, 
The use of floating wetlands to solve larger scale eco-engineering challenges also grew. But how exactly did the pollutants become processed by the wetlands? The researchers in this paper explain that the wetlands work by relying on the root systems of plants to uptake water that contains pollutants that are bad for the health of the body of water, but that the plants can process or use. Additionally, the area surrounding the roots of the plants includes small microbes that can also use the pollutants to grow. This is a symbiotic relationship between the microbes and the plants, whereby the two work together to process the pollutants. When water containing suspended solids and other pollutants reaches the floating wetlands, it can only be processed by plants because of these microbes. The microbes form a biofilm surrounding the root system, sort of like a net, that can entrap these compounds. Then the plants suck in this water that contains nitrogen, phosphorus, heavy metals, and dissolved organic matter. We did our own tests here to see how well the wetland was doing. With the at-home aquarium testing kit, we found that most of the levels for the pollutants, including nitrate and nitrite, were low across all three of our locations, including at the floating wetland. Additionally, ammonia here was much lower than at either of the two locations, close to zero at the floating wetland versus around 0.5 milligrams per liter at the other two locations. Surprisingly though, percent dissolved oxygen was the lowest at the wetland, 108.3% versus 110 and 118%. While this is surprising with the presence of aerators and other devices aiming to increase the amount of dissolved oxygen here, hopefully the lower levels are due to a higher abundance of healthy organisms here consuming the oxygen. The benefits of installing a wetland do not stop with pollution removal. In a 2021 article, Blue Water Baltimore's Baltimore Harbor waterkeeper, Alice Vilpitta, observes that she thinks, quote, the greatest benefit of these floating wetlands is providing an oasis of habitat in an otherwise inhospitable area. There are industrial canals in the inner harbor, she continues. There's no living or natural shoreline nearby, so it's pretty bleak if you're a turtle or a fish trying to hide from an osprey trying to eat you, unquote. The wetland then hopes to improve water quality as well as restore some of the original ecosystem to the area. One of the ways it does this is by combating algal blooms. If there is too much nitrogen in the water, algae populations flourish. This causes bacteria that consume algae to also grow in population, creating a cycle that is harmful to other animals in the harbor. Therefore, restoring the harbor to its original ecosystem is crucial to the lives of so many animals, including fish, turtles, crabs, birds, you name it. A list on the National Aquarium's website details just how many organisms benefit from the different aspects of the floating wetland. Blue crabs can benefit from the larger amount of oxygen here with the aeration system. Oyster populations have flourished, which also clean the water by removing pollutants. The presence of oyster shells is also important, as Simone Barkley, the manager of educational programming at the National Aquarium, explains. Other species, like smaller fish, they can go and hide in between those shells and find a place to rest and be protected from their predators. Additionally, sunfish forage for food here, while killifish can lay their eggs here. And ducks and geese and other birds also nest here by laying their eggs. In all, this webpage names 23 specific species that all need the wetland for a different reason, and this is just the start. As mentioned though, what we have now is just a prototype. From the four prototypes that have been put in place since 2010, the team at the aquarium is refining what designs and what species should be present in the next design. 
Knowing that this is only impacting a small number of animals as we have it now, the aquarium is planning a waterfront campus to be involved in the coming years. A diagram on their website shows a verdant green space floating on the harbor, stretching between two bridges in the channel, with boardwalks for the public to see the impacts of the wetlands up close. Dahlenberg mentioned that it will be about 15,000 square feet, though many challenges are still there to figure out. Simone Barkley has also mentioned how the project has larger importance for the city. I think the waterfront campus will bring new light to the pier. I think that it will definitely invite the public to be more engaged with their environment. Once it's there, when they can see these habitats and they see more organisms and species coming there, I think it's going to make them feel really proud to live in the city, to talk about the meaning of living in a watershed. As she mentioned, public engagement is another way the project aims to improve the health of the harbor. It gives them a sense of pride in where they live. I mean, that's something that's going to be really defining for the city as a whole. For one, I think it's really important that people like Simone Barkley draw this link. While ecosystem health remains a top priority, so too does the health of the city as a whole. We need to think about the ways that ecosystem health relates to community health. Public engagement and access to education about the harbor will help both the water and human communities become better places as we learn about the ways the ecosystem takes care of us and how we can better take care of the ecosystem. On the hunt for answers to these pressing questions, we took matters into our own hands and traversed down to the inner harbor ourselves to collect field measurements assessing the water quality. We conducted tests on the water using a probe that to measure dissolved oxygen, temperature, and turbidity. Along with this, we also collected water samples and measured pH, nitrate levels, ammonia levels, and nitrate levels uh, using an at-home watering kit. We chose three locations in which to conduct both of our tests. One right next to Mr. Trashwheel, one right near the floating wetland at the National Aquarium, and one at the commercial center near the main plaza of the Inner Harbor. Using our at-home aquarium test, the results indicate that the ammonia levels at the main plaza were 0.5 milligrams per liter, and at the floating wetlands, they were 0 milligrams per liter, and at Mr. Trashwheel, they were 0.5 milligrams per liter. For the nitrate levels, they were 0 parts per million at the plaza, 5 parts per million at the floating wetlands, and 10 parts per million at Mr. Trashwheel. The pH for Mr. Trashwheel was 7.4, for the floating wetlands was 7.8, and at the plaza was 7.6. The nitrate levels at Mr. Trashwheel were 0 parts per million, at the floating wetlands were also 0 parts per million, and 0 parts per million for the plaza as well. For more accurate tests, the website Eyes on the Bay has more information about readings at the Inner Harbor. Now that we shared our findings, what do we think is going to happen to the Inner Harbor? Will it be swimmable by 2030? Should we even consider it ever being swimmable? What are your opinions? I think that it's definitely a possibility, but not within the decade. Just given the current state of the harbor, how it's only slowly, ever slowly improving, and the fact that they haven't built up the infrastructure to prevent other contamination, specifically stormwater, 
is making it seem more like a one step forward, three steps back situation, where as they improve, they are also just not fixing the problem that is currently there. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point. And while um, solutions and initiatives such as Mr. Trashville and the floating wetlands that we've talked about have done a pretty good job about removing um, things that are present within the harbor, I agree that there needs to be more done to prevent more things from coming into the harbor so that we don't have to deal with the problem where it is. Um, we can be more proactive. Yeah. Um from what I saw, like the waterfront partnership is what it's currently telling people it's that, you know, the the inner harbor is not yet swimmable. And the way that they're like saying this is that, oh, it's only swimmable on certain days. And I feel like there's just gonna be a lot of skepticism from people mm-hmm. um, about like, oh, like, so I can swim in there some days. Like, I just feel like it's it doesn't ensure the safety of people that will actually, um, like go and swim um either way if it's not like even though it might not be swimmable by 2030 or ever just because there's so many like uh contaminants in there that people will not want to swim in there um i do think that we should still be making the effort you know to um like improve stormwater and also like floating wetlands if we see that those have positive effects and it's something that we should still continue um because all, even though if it's not swimmable, like we could still try to improve like the ecosystem that mm-hmm. has been um, like affected for so many years. Yeah. yeah. I think that their focus right now is like make, improving that ecosystem, but sort of just marketing it as like, we're making it swimmable, which isn't entirely like a fair thing to say that you're doing um, if like you're not currently improving of what's causing it to not be swimmable, like the contaminants going mm-hmm. in. So they are improving the ecosystem um, there specifically with the floating wetlands, as you said, but the system that was there previously, like the fish that were present, um, any fish that are there now are still toxic and it's not really addressing that sort of issue right there that's coming from the contaminants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it brings up an interesting point about um, like getting the public on board with some of these initiatives that like if I think I do agree that like I think a better goal would be let's improve the health of the ecosystem of the harbor and restore um, like some of the original ecosystem so that a lot of the organisms um, that did live there could live there again. Um, while I think that is a better goal, I think that as Raf, you mentioned, that doesn't catch on with the public as much. So people might be more invested into making the harbor a healthier place if um, if people are saying, oh, we want to make it swimmable because people can see how that directly impacts them, um, which is sort of like Mr. Trash Wheel. It, like, I think that's a good example of how um, marketing something more towards the public can help improve the health of, of the ecosystem and of the harbor in general. Yeah. I sort of feel like they should have like a Mr. Trash Wheel sort of event. Like, it, like there is a large impact from Mr. Trashville, both like socially and like like literally, physically with the ecosystem, the way it's cleaning up the harbor, but people don't really look at that. They see mm-hmm. it like, oh, big googly eyes cleaning up trash, that's cute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they should sort of um, do something similar to that, but specifically with like an infrastructure product in mind rather than like introducing new um, things to sort of remove the contaminants there. Um, it, it all comes back to sort of just like, how do we stop the contaminants from coming in mm-hmm. rather than taking the contaminants in there out 
but then having to do that again once they're reintroduced yeah. to the environment. Yeah, I think it has to be both. So, like, in a way, I think what you're also saying is that, you know, with, like, uh, initiatives like Mr. Trash World, that it's just caught a lot of community attention, that they can still um, maybe find ways to, like, get all of that attention, but maybe focusing, like, oh, like a stormwater, you know, um, like some of that technology that can fix that and just, you know, hyping up the community about it because yeah. we've seen Mr. Trashville is worldwide famous. He has so many, yeah, world renowned, so many Instagram followers. It's funny, you mentioned the trash wheel. I think with innovations such as Z's and all of the different initiatives that we've covered during this episode have shown that there is work being done, but it's just how effective and how time-consuming or feasible these efforts are in actually creating a recreational space for people to utilize in the future. Mm -hmm. Wait, so I'm wondering, like, should like the waterfront partnership or like their donor should they continue funding like mr trash wheel <laughs> that is a definite yes he does have like <laughs> that is like for sure agree sensation worldwide but like he also does have some contamination issues right just sort of like from moving that from one area to another which mm -hmm. we kind of don't address but i guess that's beyond the scope of like currently right now which mm -hmm. is like that's a bigger just like, what do we do about trash issue? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I guess does relate to the waterfront project, just like they're addressing one issue, but they're not effect they're not like looking at like what does that mean? Like why does this happen and like when we get rid of it, like what yeah. happens next? And I think it's important to note like this is one aspect of the waterfront partnership. I haven't done a lot of research into what else they do. I know that when we saw them at the Inner Harbor, they were just about to do a press release to announce a new initiative. Um yeah, so I don't know. I should, I'd, I'd be more curious to learn about mm -hmm. that, for sure. No, yeah, I really do think that it's really great that they're doing a lot of things to get community engagement. Mm -hmm. Because, like, we... Uh, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> because, uh, we, especially, like, we saw that, like, they're, they're really wanting, like, you know, locals to come out and, you know, spend time at the... Like at the like the waterfront, and I think by doing those types of events, like they'll get people to you know actually care about that. Like they'll have like like families going there, and then like their kids will grow up, and like the waterfront will have some importance to them. So like yeah. later on, like any issues that you know that come with the waterfront, like the like those generations will want to address it, yeah. and like you know so will, like other people. So do we think that they should just continue continue doing the stuff the way they're doing it right now, or like how should they like sort of spend their time towards improving? Good question. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought about it randomly. Just sort of like, well, like if they are funding themselves like this right now, should they like split their efforts towards like this and then infrastructure, or should they go all in in one way and then try to fix the other aspect later? I mean, like, I don't know for sure that they're not also focusing on infrastructure. Um, yeah, I, 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 like, from my research, I do think that the two-pronged approach would be best because 
you have to address things that are in the harbor because things will inevitably go into the harbor and then you also have to address what's coming in. I think long-term that's a better solution. Um, and just thinking about what's in the harbor now, I feel like a lot of the solutions we've looked into haven't really addressed the whole toxic sludge on the bottom of the harbor problem and people just seem to, like the solution is to stay away from it and don't disturb it. Um, I don't know that there's a way to address that, but I think that I would certainly not swim in the harbor <laughs> knowing that at any point unless that's been addressed. I guess there's like sort of just like on that like the difficulty in addressing certain issues of the harbor that are like unchangeable like by addressing those contaminants can like as you said like is it even possible to get rid of them is trying to get rid of them just going to make it worse so like is certain like like initiatives going forward like not just like the waterfront just like in general like are we improving the harbor for the sake of just improvement or to actually like make it better mm -hmm. that's the thing that i'm thinking like <clears throat> like with the trash wheel and how you say like it's really just moving trash around it's more like is this more of a spectacle type effort that doesn't really have much like substance substance or like mm -hmm. tangible effects mm -hmm. of actually like improving the water quality or just like the safety of the inner arbor Thank you for tuning in to our podcast, A Dive into the Inner Harbor. If you want to learn more, please tune in to our next episodes. Deep dive. Deep dive. Deep dive. Deep dive. Into the Inner Harbor. We're making a podcast. Don't.